The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. But within that population of NAFLD, about 5 to 10% will have NASH and about 1 to 2% will have cirrhosis. So that puts number of patients with cirrhosis in the United States related to NASH probably around 3 million. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode focuses on an article titled Gastric Bypass versus Sleeve Gastrectomy in Type 2 Diabetes, Effects on Hepatic Steatosis and Fibrosis, a Randomized Controlled Trial. This article appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine November of 2021. Joining me on the podcast is Dr. Megan Gray, who's the head of the Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. We hope you learn a lot from this podcast. Megan, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. This randomized controlled trial of bypass surgery versus sleeve gastrectomy that's been going on in Norway and has a lot of articles now has put in an article about NAFLD or hepatic steatosis and fibrosis. For the people who don't deal with this every day like you do, why don't we start by getting a brief overview of what NAFLD is and why it's so important in 2021? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to be here. Um, And this was a great article to review as well. So NAFLD, as you may know, is increasing in prevalence, not only in the United States, but also uh, universally. And it can be a spectrum of disorders. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease encompasses non-alcoholic fatty liver, which is just simple steatosis. These patients are at low risk to progress to cirrhosis, but the fat in the liver is still important because they can, it can be a risk factor for them to have cardiovascular disease. It also includes non-alcoholic cyanohepatitis, which is NASH. And this is, of course, the population that we worry about more because they can form fibrosis and eventually get cirrhosis. And then it includes those who have cirrhosis as well. So really a spectrum of disorders. Just to give you a sense of how many patients have this or how many people in the United States are at risk for this, it's estimated that 80 to 100 million people in the United States have NAFLD. And since it's mostly an asymptomatic disease, there's many patients out there that probably have no idea that they're affected. So that's about 30% of the U.S. population. Comparing that to diabetes, diabetes, which we talk about all the time and and people are much more aware of, only affects about 10% of the population or about 34 million Americans. So about three times more common than diabetes, even though we talk about it much less. But within that population of NAFLD, about 5 to 10% will have NASH and about 1 to 2% will have cirrhosis. So that puts number of patients with cirrhosis in the United States related to NASH probably around 3 million. So still a significant amount of people. If I remember right, it's quickly becoming the most common reason for referral for liver transplant. 
It is already most common in women, and it is currently number two, uh, second to alcohol overall. Very common. Also most common cause of chronic liver disease in children. So we think about fatty liver. Is this an obesity disease? We have a lot of obesity, and certainly in Alabama where we live, we have a lot of obesity. Does it affect thin people, or, or is it a gradation where it's more common uh, with people who have uh, obesity? Yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of different risk factors for NAFLD. And so obesity is definitely a major risk factor. Also, any of the metabolic diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, PCOS, metabolic syndrome, basically the more risk factors you have, the more likely it is that you will have NAFLD and then also more likely that you'll have NASH. So Stephen Harrison has done some really nice work kind of separating each individual risk factor and looking at the prevalence of NAFLD based on MRI, which is a very accurate, non-invasive way to assess NAFLD. And then also with liver biopsy to see how many patients have NASH. So specifically when he looked at the group of patients with body mass index over 30 without any of the other metabolic comorbidities, about 55% of those had NAFLD on MRI and then 26% had NASH on biopsy. So about a fourth of patients with a BMI over 30 have NASH, which is a significant population. Comparing that specifically to patients with diabetes, you have about 66% with NAFLD and 36% with NASH. So obesity is a little bit less likely to cause NASH than diabetes, but still, um, you know, very significant. And then when we look at patients with metabolic syndrome, about 74% with NAFLD and 46% with NASH. If you have a patient with metabolic syndrome, it's about 50, 50 that they have NASH and are at risk to progress. So the more risk factors you have, the more likely it is that you'll have these diseases. Um, we do see patients with what we consider lean NAFLD. So normal BMI, but still have fatty liver. And that can be you know, for a variety of reasons, potentially not completely understood at this time, but definitely genetic factors play a risk for those patients. We know, especially, you know, patients of Indian descent are more likely to have fatty liver at lower body weights. And that may be related to genetic variances like PNPLA3 and others. The article here is an interesting one. It's uh, done in people with type 2 diabetes. It's a Norwegian study. And when we get to the Table one, it's very clearly that it's a Norwegian study, but it's a randomized control trial, which we haven't had a lot of randomized control trials in surgery, and they compare gastric bypass with sleeve gastrectomy. Maybe uh, we could start by reminding everybody what the operation is that we call gastric bypass and what the operation is that we call sleeve gastrectomy. Yeah, so sleeve gastrectomy is, uh, I would consider to be a little bit less invasive than RUIN-Y. So this is basically where the surgeon is just cutting off part of the stomach and making it so that the shape of the stomach looks like a sleeve. And so you kind of just have a direct tunnel esophagus narrowed tube of stomach that goes directly into the duodenum. So the only part that's operated on is the stomach body. And then for RUIN-Y gastric bypass, this is a more significant procedure. So not only are they making your stomach very small, but they're also bypassing part of your intestine. So it's, it's both restrictive, but also malabsorptive. So not only is the stomach very small, so you can only eat very small amounts, but also they've excluded part of your intestine now. So there's a much shorter amount of intestinal length available to absorb nutrients and calories. 
So uh, more significant operation also leads to more significant weight loss. And more significant nutrient deficiencies. That's correct. Which we do sometimes see. So they randomized people to these two surgeries. And let's discuss who are the patients. And because I think it's important because we don't want to over-extrapolate from this study, but there's a lot of interesting things going on. And I will say right now, this is a one-year study and they plan to give five-year data eventually. So who are the patients? Yeah, so patients are mainly white. So you can see 96 to 98% of the population was white, which as you mentioned, would be somewhat expected for the area doing the study. Age was kind of middle-aged, so 46 to 48 years old. And then uh, there was majority females, especially in the Y gastric bypass group, about 72% of the patients were female compared to about 58% female in the sleeve gastrectomy group. And do you think that the difference in gender could have any impact on the results? Uh, Should we worry about that difference in gender? You know, we'll talk about the ways that they use these fibrosis markers in a little bit, but we do know that ELF, which is one of the scores that they use to measure fibrosis, females do tend to have lower ELF scores. Um, And so potentially, yes, it may impact what we talk about later. Okay. So... We've discussed NAFLD. We know that some of our patients got bypass Roux-en-Y. Some people got sleeve gastrectomy and it was randomized. You can't blind it, really. <laughs> There's no way to blind uh, the, these two operations, I don't think. Let's focus on uh, liver testing. And they, look, they were looking at hepatic steatosis and liver fibrosis. So maybe you can get us back up to speed for why they were looking at those two things. Absolutely. Well, I guess before I talk to you about that, I'm going to touch just for a few minutes on weight loss for NAFLD because I think that's important. So as you know, and as much of our audience probably knows, there's no FDA approved medications for NAFLD right now. And so the things that we know work to reverse steatosis, to reverse NASH, and even sometimes improve fibrosis is weight loss. And so generally the numbers that we kind of quote to patients is that if you can lose about 3% of your body weight, you can resolve steatosis most of the time. If you can lose 5%, you can start to affect the ballooning and inflammation that's seen in NASH. 7% can actually help resolve NASH completely in a large percentage of patients. And then if you can lose 10% of your body weight, that can actually start to resolve fibrosis. So when we're talking to patients in the clinic about weight loss, that 10% goal is generally what we always give them um, because that's what's been shown to help the disease the most. And so then when we're talking about how to lose weight, obviously this is very challenging, not only to lose weight in the first place, but also to maintain weight loss long-term. So when we look at patients who are trying to lose weight by changing their eating habits and their exercise habits, usually they lose a maximum amount of weight at about six months. And that's usually maybe five to six kilograms. And then they do tend to regain that if you continue to follow them an additional six to 12 months. So when you look at overall body weight loss, it's about two to three kilograms. So it's very difficult for patients to lose weight in the first place, but also to maintain it over the long term. Now, there are other things that are available that we can help patients maintain weight loss, things like medications, you know, more and more medications are coming out that can, that are very safe and can help with weight loss. But what I always talk to patients about is that it's not just losing 20 pounds that's going to be helpful for your liver, but it's maintaining that 20 pound weight loss for the rest of your life. 
So when we're talking about sustainable weight loss, we know that surgery is actually much better for that. And that's how I always talk to patients about surgical options. So typically patients that undergo either sleeve gastrectomy or ruin Y will lose maximum amount of weight at about 18 months. And they can have some weight regain, but when you look at five-year outcomes for both of these operations, sleeve gastrectomy will have average weight loss of about 20% total body weight at five years. And that's compared to about 26% in patients that undergo ruin Y. So even though they may have not maintained the maximum amount of weight that they lost at 18 months, they're still sustaining an amount of weight loss that's going to be beneficial for their liver and other metabolic comorbidities in the long term. That's really helpful. And I guess that's one of the reasons they want to look at NAFLD in a study. And let's let's make, make this clear. This study was not designed for liver disease. This study was designed for type 2 diabetes. But they took advantage as a secondary analysis to uh, look at steatosis and fibrosis. Am I right that steatosis is just fat in the liver? And that, that's NAFLD. That's when you add the fibrosis that we start getting worried. Correct. Inflammation and fibrosis is definitely when we get worried. Yeah. Your initial question that I skipped over was talking about measures of hepatic steatosis and hepatic fibrosis. And so, you know, hepatic steatosis is a little bit easier to measure non-invasively. So we'll just touch on the two different mechanisms that they used Um, So one mechanism that they used is an MRI. So we do commonly use MRI to quantify hepatic fat in the liver. Um, There are different types of MRI. I would say that the technology they used was a little bit of an older version. So they used uh, what they called the liver fat fraction. Um, And it is known that this technology can significantly depend on platform and specific scan parameters. And so in general, it's not considered to be a consistently useful or broadly applicable biomarker of hepatic steatosis. That's compared to what we use more commonly in the United States, which is MRI proton density fat fraction, um, which is a little bit different, but kind of uh, accounts for different confounders and can provide accurate quantification of hepatic steatosis that's reliable and repeatable. So I guess I would say I like MRI in general for quantitative hepatic fat, but unfortunately the MRI they used wasn't just the most up-to-date. And then they also use something called the NAFLD liver fat score. Um, I would say that this is not something that's used clinically. I, I can see potentially its usefulness. It's basically a calculation that they use based on the presence of metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, fasting serum insulin, and then fasting AST and ALT ratio. So basically, you're taking patients that are at risk for NAFLD, you're using the labs that you have available, and you're calculating what is their risk to actually have NAFLD. So for patients who have a score greater than negative 0.64, it can predict NAFLD with a sensitivity of 86%, specificity of 71%. So I guess I feel like since we already know what the risk factors for NAFLD are, I don't necessarily need this score to give me a a number in terms of their risk, um, but it's just an available score that's out there. And then moving on to liver fibrosis. So they had a couple of different measures for this as well. As we know, gold standard to detect liver fibrosis remains liver biopsy at this time. Um, And a lot of the prior bariatric surgery data that's out there does use biopsy. And so as a hepatologist, of course, you know, I, I feel that those uh, measures are, are stronger, but what they used was two different things. One is the ELF test, 
So this is um, a non-invasive marker to evaluate fibrosis. They use biomarkers of hepatic matrix metabolism, and these include hyaluronic acid, procollagen 3 aminoterminal peptide, and tissue inhibitor of metalloproteins 1. And so this test is not bad. Um, so they separate scores. If it's lower than 7.7, then you likely have no or minimal fibrosis. If you're between 7.7 .7 and 9.8, you may have moderate fibrosis and then scores higher than 9.8 indicate that you're at risk for advanced fibrosis. Um, so the score has been shown to, to be significantly affected by age and gender. So females, females have lower scores than males and then older subjects tend to have higher scores than younger subjects. Uh, but it has been compared to biopsy. Actually, there was a nice paper in JAMA earlier this year that compared the use of ELF to biopsy. Um, and so when patients had scores higher than 9.8, sensitivity for advanced fibrosis was 57%, specificity 89%, positive predictive value 62%. So it's not the worst test, but it's, it's not considered to be as good as a biopsy. And then the second test they used was what's considered the NAFLD fibrosis score. So this is easily calculated on labs that patients typically get in clinic. So it uses their age, body mass index, whether or not they have impaired fasting glucose, AST, ALT, platelet count, and albumin. So similarly, there's sort of a range of scores. If your score is less than negative 1.455, that predicts low risk to have advanced fibrosis. Scores between negative 1.455 and 0.675 are considered indeterminate and need further evaluation. And then scores higher than 0.675 put you in the high risk category to have advanced fibrosis. Um, so this score performs relatively well. Um, it's better to rule out advanced fibrosis as opposed to ruling in, but at a cutoff at, at 0.675, it has 33% sensitivity, 98% specificity, and 79% positive predictive value for advanced fibrosis. Now we know what we're doing, what, what they're measuring, and they're doing all this at one year. And we know that that's not even when you have your maximum weight loss, as you, as you explained to us. Uh, these, were, these were large people. These were people with average BMI of 42. Uh, we, we already talked about gender differences and the uh, homogeneity of race. It's almost all uh, white men and women. And because this was the, started out as a type 2 diabetes study, they'd had uh, type 2 diabetes for uh, a number of years. What did they find? Like most bariatric surgical studies, they found that both, both groups of patients lost a lot of weight. So when we look at hepatic steatosis first, they compared weight loss for sleep gastrectomy compared to weight loss at Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. So both groups did lose significant amount of weight, but the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass group did lose 8.4 kilograms more than the sleeve gastrectomy group. So as you would expect, more weight loss leads to more resolution of steatosis. And so in the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass group, all of those patients resolved their hepatic steatosis. And then in the sleeve gastrectomy group, 94% resolved steatosis. Um, and so that makes sense. You know, they, they lost a significant percentage of their baseline body weight. And so we would expect for them to resolve their steatosis with those surgeries. Um, and then when we move on to fibrosis, this is where, you know, results using the, the scores were kind of conflicting. So when you look at the ELF score in the group that underwent Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, there was actually a significant increase in the ELF score at that one year timeline. 
Um, and that was only seen in the Ruin-Y gastric bypass group. And then when you look at the NAFLD fibrosis score, you know, this score, we have to remember the components of the score are things like body mass index, insulin resistance. So as those things change with weight loss, of course, your NAFLD fibrosis score is also going to improve um, or decrease with weight loss. So they said that in the room gastric bypass group, there were 12 patients that were predicted to have advanced fibrosis at baseline. Um, and then in the sleep gastrectomy group, there were 13 patients predicted to have advanced fibrosis at baseline. So after that one year follow-up, the 12 patients in the room Y group improved to zero. So lot, several patients with advanced fibrosis predicted at baseline improved to zero with room Y gastric bypass. And then the 13 patients initially in the sleep gastrectomy group predicted to have advanced fibrosis improved to just three patients at one year follow-up. So intuitively that that's the calculation that makes more sense to our brains. You lost a lot of weight. We would expect improvement in steatosis and fibrosis. So that all kind of seems to fit together, but I think it's what throws is throwing everyone off is why this ELF score would have increased um, over the one year time period when everything else indicates that fibrosis should have been improved. Let's go over the limitations and then I really need you to put this into context. We have a lot of primary care physicians who listen to this podcast and they take care of a lot of people who have NAFLD. Is there any, anything we should take away from this yet? At least for myself personally, when it comes to taking away significant conclusions from this paper, as a hepatologist, I just feel like it's very limited because there's not liver biopsies. And it's just not consistent with what we've seen in data that does have liver biopsies available. And so for me, I'm always going to defer to those papers that have used biopsy because that's the gold standard. So just to reference one quickly, there was a very nice study, you know, that looked at patients that had bariatric surgery and did have NASH and fibrosis at baseline. And they followed patients for five years, which I feel like is a more valuable amount of time to look for outcomes. And I know this, this paper is planning to do that as well, but they saw improvement in fibrosis and 70% of patients at five years. And they saw that the improvement in fibrosis was very gradual, but it was regular improvement. So they did see some improvement at the one-year mark, but they continued to see ongoing improvement up to the five years of follow-up. So I think, you know, it takes many, many years for patients to develop fibrosis in the first place. And so when we think about monitoring fibrosis outcomes, I really do think that those longer term studies that have the gold standard liver biopsy are just more valuable. So I still would take away those, you know, meaningful outcomes from those papers compared to using one of these non-invasive markers. So I think, you know, major limitations were that there were not biopsies performed, that ELF is not a perfect test. It can be helpful, but not a perfect test. I don't have a great explanation for why it went up after the one-year mark. Um, there, there is data out there, you know, showing that there is significant increase in circulating bile acids after having surgery, especially Ruin-Y gastric bypass. And so the authors had sort of mentioned maybe it was something to do with bile acids and matrix metabolism that was impacting the ELF score, but I think it's hard to say for sure. Um, other limitations, it's all white patients. There was a high prevalence of diabetes. So I, I think the study is, is limited. And I think for myself, I still think that bariatric surgery is an excellent 
way to treat NAFLD. And for eligible patients that are interested, I still strongly encourage it. And that's both sleep gastrectomy or RUNY, whichever them and the surgeons think is the best for them. Um, and so this study for me wouldn't change my current recommendations. Without any data, which operation do you see being done the most at this time? And is there any discussion of that uh, at a national level or international level when you go to meetings on NAFLD? I think that both procedures lead to sustainable weight loss. I think that when you talk to bariatric surgeons, especially for patients with class three and above obesity or even higher, because RUNY gastric bypass does lead to more significant weight loss, they tend to prefer that procedure for the patients falling into those very high BMI categories. Um, I would say that I'm honestly, I'm okay with whatever the patient prefers. I think that like you kind of mentioned earlier, I think that patients are more aware of complications related to RUNY gastric bypass. They do kind of come with a lot of preconceived notions about nutritional deficiencies or other potential problems that they've seen in friends or family members. And they tend to be a little bit more closed-minded. So personally, I've seen patients be a lot more interested in sleeve gastrectomy because they understand it's a little bit of a more minor operation with less risk for long-term complications. And so, you know, I think patient preference is is very important and and certainly, you know, talking to them about risk and benefits of both is good. So back to our favorite shared decision-making. Megan, thank you so much for helping us put this uh, study into context as, and I'm going to summarize what I think I heard you say. Clearly, weight loss surgery helps decrease fat. In the long run, there are studies that suggest it decreases fibrosis, even though in this study, with the less than uh, gold standard measures they used, they did not find that. But perhaps it takes quite some time because they didn't get fibrosis overnight. It's not going to go away overnight that when you have patients with significant obesity and have uh, NASH, that weight loss surgery is a consideration, not just for the liver disease, but most of those people have metabolic disease and it could help a lot of the other things. So we still should be thinking about this in our largely obese patients. Perfect summary. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This study provides more information on the value of weight loss in patients who have NAFLD. What it doesn't really answer is questions about the value of two different bariatric surgeries on fibrosis, since fibrosis is a marker for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and eventually cirrhosis. As we discussed uh, in the podcast, the duration of follow-up in the study of one year is too short to give definitive answers about comparing bypass surgery with sleeve gastrostomy. What we do know is that weight loss is important and that we should strive to move towards weight loss in patients who present to us who have significant non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. 
Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.